Is your business two steps ahead or always one behind? If the latter, chances are you lack data and insights to confirm your instincts. Here's the deal. Leaders are trapped in a world where data and insights are still a luxury rather than a commodity. While you might have strong intuitions about your business, my guess is you're hampered by legacy institutions and capabilities that provide only surface-level data and insights that do very little to validate your assumptions. Join me on a journey with some of the world's most notable minds who will share with you their secrets in capturing and making data-driven decisions that power their business. I'm Maury Blackman, and this is Great Minds Think Data. Welcome to today's episode of Great Minds Think Data. While the coronavirus represented a public health crisis unseen in generations, there is a looming economic crisis now that could royal markets deep into this decade. Despite economic warning signals in March 2021, the Biden administration and Congress pressed forward with an economic stimulus package that in hindsight created red-hot inflation. For individuals, this means higher food prices, more expensive gas, and price increases for many essential services. In short, consumer spending power has decreased significantly during the past year, and it hurts. Originally labeled as transitory by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Fed Chair Jerome Powell, it has become very clear that inflation is out of control and aggressive action is required. One voice who recognized early that inflation could emerge was Larry Summers. The former Treasury Secretary during the Clinton administration and perhaps the world's leading and most important economist penned an opinion piece in the Washington Post. He lent support to President Biden's plan, but warned the legislation could set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation. His primary concern was that the legislation, without the proper guardrails to protect economic stability, could lead to unstable financial conditions. At this point, the Federal Reserve has taken the hawkish position that interest rate hikes to cool the economy is the medicine to cure this condition. My guest today is Larry Summers. As mentioned, Larry was one of the loudest and most respected voices warning of a potential financial crisis. In today's episode, we will explore with Larry his thoughts and objectives leading up to his opinion piece, his thoughts on our current condition, and most importantly, how we should think about navigating the turbulent seas ahead. Welcome, Larry. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Larry, your opinion piece written more than 18 months ago now created a considerable stir at the time and is still quoted today. My read of the article is that you were not against the stimulus, but wanted to tweak the legislation and put guardrails in place to protect the economy. Am I on the right track? Yeah, I supported the broad objectives of what President Biden was going to do. I did think that there was a substantial risk that we were taking a bathtub that needed to be filled, and we were going to create a flood. And unfortunately, that's what happened. Right. Were you surprised by the response to your article? I knew I was saying something that was not the conventional wisdom of the time. And I thought I was saying it with a certain clarity. And that can often generate a substantial uh, response. So I didn't expect the article to strike as much of a chord as it did both among those who agreed and those who disagreed. But I can't honestly say I was amazed by what happened. When you wrote the article, what impact were you trying to make? What were you thinking? I've got a deep conviction, Maury, that if people see and understand the world more clearly, they'll make better decisions. 
And so I don't feel that I always have to have a precise place I'm trying to take things. But I think if there's more clarity in seeing what's ahead, then I think people will find their way to better places. And so I wanted there to be an awareness that was much greater than that there was at that time, that what was being done was massive, that it was disproportionate to what had been done in 2009, for example, in a huge way, and that it could have effects that would take us into a place that most people didn't remember because they hadn't been adults when it had happened during the Vietnam War or during the 1970s. And I thought if that awareness was there, there might be adjustments to the policy as it was being legislated. There might be adjustments to what would happen uh, down the road. There might be adjustments at uh, the Federal Reserve to what was happening. And that was what I thought. Well, if we could go back in time and change the legislation, what could we have done better? It should have been half the size or maybe a little less than half the size. It's basic premise that the economy had a major problem of being demand short was wrong by 2021. We were coming out of the recovery, coming into a recovery, coming out of the COVID period, the dynamic for understanding what was happening in the economy was a little bit like the dynamic of what happens on Cape Cod in the town I vacation in, in the summer, as winter turns to summer, businesses are closed, then demand starts again, then people come back. Once people are back at work, they're back at spending and it all sort of fixes uh, itself. And when you take a system like that and you infuse large amounts of money into it, you're taking uh, extra risks. And that's what we did. So we didn't need to be sending checks to everybody in sight. We certainly didn't need to be paying people 125 or 140% of what they earned when they worked to not work and uh, stay at home. So when I looked at your article, and then I kind of know about your involvement in the Inflation Reduction Act, in your mind, is that correct, some of the missteps and help change the course and put us in a different path? No, that would not be the right way to characterize it. The bill in 2021 largely spent out during 2021 It infused trillions of dollars, literally, into the American economy, some of which is still being spent now. The Inflation Reduction Act was a very different thing. I don't think it's going to reduce inflation very much, but it's not going to increase it either. Instead of being trillions of dollars over one year, it was hundreds of billions of dollars over 10 years. Instead of being unpaid for with corresponding revenue increases to the spending, it was fully paid for. Instead of supporting spending, which was consumption, 
it was supporting spending, which was uh, investment. So because it was investment, because it was paid for, because it was on a different scale, it seemed to me to be a much healthier and more desirable thing. And that's why I was uh, pleased to support it and pleased to urge others to support it. Well, I noticed in your article in 21, you pointed out that we had a need for more public investment and public infrastructure. That's how I kind of bridged the two together. Right. But it's, we, you know, it's always a matter in making policy prudently of figuring out what you need, what you want, and what the limits of your resources are and making choices. You know, in some ultimate sense, making government budget priorities is like making a business's budget. There are many things that parts of a company would like to do that would genuinely make the company better, but you can't afford to do all of them. You have to make priorities and you have to make choices. And the same thing is true uh, for a government setting a course. Except businesses can't print money. We can raise it. Businesses can't print money, uh, but governments can't go on for too long only by printing money. In some ways, the uh, very dramatic problems that Britain is encountering reflect what happens when a country sets policy not really aware of the full extent of the constraints on what it can finance. Well, we're definitely going to get to the UK. Um, But I want to take us back a little bit. You mentioned the 70s and the Vietnam War and and the inflation post that. How does this inflationary cycle compare to that great inflation period we had in the 70s? And help us understand what broke that trend and how should we think about that going forward? Look, we're less than two years into this one. The Vietnam War in the 1970s went on for close to 15 years. We've probably got inflation two-thirds as high if you take comparable indices as we did then. But two-thirds as high is different from 100% as high. And I think it's fair to say that the inflationary habit the inflationary expectations had gotten themselves to be much more entrenched by the end of the 1970s than they are today. So we've been drinking too much, but we're not yet confirmed alcoholics. And that's why it's really important, in my view, that we break this pattern right now, which is why I was so worried about uh, the Fed's policy and the whole delusion that was team transitory. I think we've now got the message and we're now trying to move strongly. I don't think we've been fully tested because I think we haven't really started to feel some of the pain of withdrawal. And so this isn't going to be completely easy. But what I'm fairly confident of is that moving more vigorously will involve less total pain 
than moving less vigorously. Over the longer term. Over the longer term. Right. Well, I, I think one of the things that a lot of, of Americans have a hard time understanding, and, and I have to admit that sometimes it's, it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around, is how does raising interest rates impact inflation? There's sort of two ways of thinking about it, Maury. One is that the things you do to raise interest rates, basically the government's selling bonds of one kind or other, soak up money. And then when there's less money around, there's less inflation because money becomes more valuable. That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is that when you have higher interest rates, you cause people to not want to engage in the most deferrable kinds of spending. The kinds of spending that from the point of view of the whole economy, you know, most of the housing stock that the country's going to have next year is the housing stock that's already here. So even a big change in the amount of housing investment this year doesn't change the housing stock next year by very much. So it's the most durable goods that are most influenced by interest rates. And so we reduce uh, demand by raising the cost of capital. And that reduces investment spending in new houses and new factories by making it more expensive. That tends to, by meaning a higher discount factor, reduce people's wealth which leads them to want to spend less, and it leads to a stronger dollar, which makes imports cheaper and so causes our demand to fall on places outside the United States rather than inside the United States, and makes imported goods cheaper, and so it puts more competition on American producers. Fed Chair Powell recently acknowledged that in raising rates, there will be some pain to households and businesses. It seems to me he's implying that unemployment will increase, and we do accept this as a cure for our current economic condition. Does it make you uncomfortable, Larry, that the medicine the Fed is prescribing, raising interest rates and cooling demand, thus creating unemployment, will place some hardworking Americans under significant financial stress? Look, I began my career, I went into economics because I thought a doctor can treat one patient at a time. And if an economist makes a negligible contribution that reduces the unemployment rate by one-tenth of one percent for one month, that's 150,000 kids who were able to look at their parents with pride, who otherwise wouldn't have been able to look at their parents with pride. And so making economic policy better seems to me to be an incredibly important thing that's worth a lifetime of thought and work. So I yield to no one in how much I hate unnecessary unemployment. But the question is not what can you do to prevent someone from being unemployed tomorrow. The question is what 
policies can you pursue that will minimize the total level of unemployment over time? And it's the painful lesson of history that when you lose track of price stability that keeps an economy anchored, that's when you see the wages of working people fall in terms of their purchasing uh, power. That's when you see a sense that societies are out of control and people like Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan come to power. That's when ultimately you have to make the larger and more painful adjustment. And so the lesson I've learned is that it's important to try to respond to inflation early and to try to make sure that it doesn't ever get to a level where it's what's defining what's going on in a society. And that's the mistake we made in the 1960s and the 1970s. That's the mistake that is made very, very frequently in uh, emerging markets. And it's a mistake we've largely avoided until now over the last several decades. Well, we've been deficit spending for years. I guess your argument might be that, well, this time was different because of the, the size. Maury, the secret sauce of economics is arithmetic. It's the fact that we don't just say yes, no, more, less. We actually calculate. And just like you can't build a bridge without calculating, you can't run a business without financial statements. If you tried to run a business by saying we need more revenue, so we'll hire more salespeople, and you didn't do careful calculation about how many salespeople there were and how much revenue there was going to be, you wouldn't be running a very good business. And it's the same way in thinking about uh, budget deficits. And all these people who said we didn't spend enough in 2009, therefore the amount of spending we're doing now is okay, had not done arithmetic. Perhaps we should have spent 50% more than we did in 2009. Perhaps we should have spent twice as much as we did in 2009. Certainly at the time, I told President Obama that it was like my losing weight. The issue was not a worry that I would lose too much. The economy could absorb as much fiscal stimulus as the political process would engage in. But I don't think there was anybody no one in 2009 who thought we should have spent five times as much relative to the gap that we had. And that's roughly what we did this time around. Well, the, you know, the idea that the Federal Reserve is raising rates to reduce demand, it's not without controversy. I mean, politically, Elizabeth Warren from your home state, for example, has chastised the Fed and said, essentially, the medicine you're prescribing to reduce inflation isn't going to help. You know, put it, putting the economy into a recession doesn't help anybody. How do you respond to that? Life is about choices. And the question one has to ask is the view 
the team transitory view that if you don't do anything and you just keep stimulating, somehow inflation will end up low. And certainly the last year and a half's history has not been kind to the acolytes of that view. Just to remind, even with the restraint that they opposed, last month, core inflation ran at above 7%. And the last month was more than the last quarter. The last quarter was more than the last half year. And the last half year was more than the last year. So it doesn't seem like team transitory is working out. Another view is Richard Nixon's view that you should put price controls on people who you think are gouging and that you should continue to stimulate. That was also Jimmy Carter's view with respect to gasoline prices. And I'm old enough to remember when you had to wait online for three hours to fill up your tank, only you couldn't fill up your tank. You could only fill up half your tank. And people were paying a price then. They were just paying it in their time and not with their money. And so that didn't work very well either. So I think the question you have to consider is, uh, given everything that we know and given our shared values, which are not some kind of mathematical purity around the inflation statistics, but are about having as many people as possible working and having them have as much purchasing power as possible, not just today, but next year and the year after that, what is the best strategy? And I have not heard the critics of the Fed propose an alternative strategy with a credible theory of what the positive results will be. And I do know that they have made a substantial variety of predictions that have, over the last year and a half, turned out to be wrong, which suggests that they may not have complete control of the thread uh, that we're on. Now, they could turn out to be right in the future. But, you know, there's another aspect of this, Maury, which is that I have always felt, both in advising policymakers and in being a policymaker, that you have to be humble. You have to be, I mean, at one level, you can't be humble because you have to decide and take responsibility for a decision. But at another level, you have to be humble in recognizing that you don't know and that you're going to be wrong sometimes. And you have to think about the direction of error. And my view is that if we restrain the economy too much, we can reduce interest rates and re-stimulate the economy and get going again. If we act too slowly and inflation expectations become entrenched, then it's like you're drinking too much, tipping over into an addiction where it becomes 
vastly more painful to reverse the error. Are there other tools besides rate hikes that are at our disposal that you know we might be able to implement to soften the blow? There are things we should be doing. Uh, it is crazy that we are exporting natural gas to Europe because it's cheaper to ship natural gas from Texas to Europe than it is from Texas to New England because you can use a foreign ship to take it to Europe, but you can't use a foreign ship to take it from Texas to New England. And that's pushing up the price of energy. We are putting tariffs on goods that aren't ultimately sold to consumers, but are sold to producers, who as a consequence of having to pay more for those goods, charge American consumers more, and are less competitive when they compete on world markets. We are paying more to dangerously ship oil and natural gas on trucks because the ability to site pipelines is being held up. We are burning more coal because permits to frack and get natural gas aren't being granted. So there are a variety of things we could do that would make the economy work better, would expand its capacity, that would have the same kind of positive impact that the Biden administration's use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve had, that the Biden administration's very desirable increases in support for renewables had. There's much more that we could do that would be in that direction that would be helpful. But I think most economists would tell you that the primary responsibility rests with monetary policy. Well, I, you know, from the almost day one of the administration taking office, the first thing they did was cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Are you in favor of that? I'm not an expert on the Keystone Pipeline, but I suspect it was a mistake. I think that was an issue that had enormous symbolic value for a variety of environmental groups. But I think if you actually ask about how much canceling the Keystone Pipeline contributed to reducing climate change and what its costs were in terms of jobs for workers in the heartland and what its costs were in terms of extra inflation that then put the pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. I certainly haven't seen the rigorous economic analysis that would justify that decision. But again, I'm not an expert on it, and I think it's important to recognize that there were aspects of generating political momentum that led to that policy choice. Well, the other thing that we hear a lot about is refining. So there hasn't been a refinery permitted here in California in many, many decades at this point. If we loosen the regulations and make it easier for us to drill 
move energy around the country, would that have a, I, I feel like in my opinion, it would have an immediate impact just by signaling that the administration is taking energy seriously. I mean, I understand the renewable side of it. I'm a big proponent of that, but this issue seems to be a vexing one in our economy today. I remember when many years ago, there was a proposal to put in one of the first HOV lanes on one of the freeways in California. And it got held up for two or three years because Exxon insisted on a set of environmental impact statements being done with respect to that proposal since it was an infrastructure program and that held it up for two or three years. I think that's all you sort of need to know to know that we're kind of a constipated society in this respect. Just what changes we should make. I'm not sure we're not better off in many cases having refining, oil refining done outside the country. But should it be easier to permit pipelines? Should it be easier? Yes. There was an agreement made by Senator Manchin as he supported the Inflation Reduction Act that Congress would move on legislation. That was stopped by an unholy alliance, an unholy alliance of people who regarded themselves as progressive environmentalists who just didn't want to live with the deal and wanted to make symbolic points, and Republicans who favored the underlying substance but didn't want to allow Democrats to solve a problem and wanted there to be divisiveness. Well, that was probably not our system working at its best. And I hope that in the context of the period after the election, during the so-called lame duck session, when tempers are running a little cooler, that perhaps we'll be able to do the legislation. But the answer is yes. Yes, Maury, we surely should be doing those kinds of things. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Larry Summers. We're back with Great Minds Think Data and my guest, Larry Summers. Larry, the student loan forgiveness, what are your views on that? I opposed it. I opposed it because I thought there were better uses of $400 billion. I thought people who have gone to college are on average significantly more fortunate than people who have not gone to college. I thought there were injustices between those who had drawn down their savings and those who had borrowed, those who had gone to less expensive schools, and those who had borrowed. So I thought it was a somewhat capricious distribution of $400 billion. And I thought there were and are a variety of sloppiness in uh, the structuring of the program. For example, if I graduate from, you know, the program is targeted on those with lower and middle incomes or middle incomes. If I graduate from Harvard Business School and I start my job at Goldman Sachs in October, then in my first year out, I may well have an income under $125,000 and therefore qualify for the full debt relief forever. But there's nothing poor 
or middle class about me. There was also a set of announcements about the so-called income-driven replacement option, where it appears that the rules are being written to turn the loan program into a massive subsidy program where the vast majority of those who use the program will, even in present value, pay less than the total cost of their college education. And that will, I think, encourage all sorts of abuse in the form of higher tuition and uh, the use of these programs and will, I think, be very inefficient. My suspicion is that that could become really very expensive and could become comparably expensive or in the same range of expense as the $400 billion that the Congressional Budget Office estimated for student loans. Now, that's not been implemented yet, and my hope is that the rules will be carefully reviewed. And as the program is structured, perhaps my worries will be engineered around. I very much hope so. You mentioned the strengthening dollar and talked about the situation in the UK. How does that change the calculus inside the Fed? How should they think about the dollar strength, what's going around the world in implementing their policies here in the US? I think the Fed's job has to be to maximize economic welfare in the United States. They have to recognize that major problems abroad will affect us. As uh, Alan Greenspan said many years ago, uh, the United States cannot be an oasis of prosperity in an economically distressed world, but their focus has to be on us. And when they see that strong dollar, they have to think about its consequences for the price level. They have to think about its consequences for employment in areas where there are going to be cheap imports and where our exports are going to be less competitive. But I think for the most part, they've got to set a policy based on minimizing inflation, keeping inflation near their target, and minimizing volatility and unemployment. Take us inside the Fed. How do they make these decisions? Well, you know, I've been fortunate to be the Secretary of the Treasury, and I've been fortunate to be a chief economic advisor to the president. In the course of doing those jobs, I've obviously had very substantial interaction with the Fed, but I've never been part of the Federal Reserve uh, system. So I have not, so to speak, been in the room where it happens. But I think that broadly, there's a large staff of economists who track everything from what's happening in the mobile home sector to the competitiveness of software businesses. And that all is fed into forecasts and a synthetic view of what's happening in the economy prior to their meetings. And typically, the chairman of the Board of Governors attempts to foster a consensus 
and speaks with a variety of people, trying to understand their views and sharing his own. And then they get to some kind of consensus about what action is going to be taken. With increasing importance in recent years, they get also to a consensus about what is going to be said about the actions that are taken and what kinds of future actions are uh, going to be previewed. It's um, as close as I've seen in government to a relatively academic setting. It doesn't have the feel of the White House. People aren't running in the halls. Hard to spend a day in a White House without hearing an obscenity or two. It would be hard to spend a week at the Fed and hear uh, any obscenities. Well, people are each- polite. People are politely in dialogue with each other, and of course, the Fed has its federal aspect with uh, twelve regional Federal Reserve banks, whose presidents also play a role in the monetary policy process. Does each member? have their own staff? Do they create their own views? The 12 regional presidents have regional staffs who are their staffs. There is one collective staff who largely report to the chairman and who are made available to members of the board to assist them with respect to particular tasks. But one of the reasons why the chairman of the Fed, unlike the chief justice of the Supreme Court, is much more primum than inter pares, much more first than among equals, is that the chairman controls and the chairman's close inner staff largely run the broad staff of experts who comprise the Fed. Well, you referenced the Supreme Court because that's one of the questions I had in my own mind is, in your mind, how did the two compare? I mean, they're both both supposed to be non-political. They're both supposed to be objective. They're both supposed to be implementing policy. Well, in the Supreme Court's case, we're interpreting laws and making judgments. The Federal Reserve is doing very similar things, but around monetary policy to kind of guide the country in the right direction. I think one can overdo the analogy because in the one case you're resolving disputes and in the other case you're choosing appropriate settings of a dial. In the one case you're a separate branch of government. In the other case you're a creature of the Congress with appointment power residing with uh, the president. But I think in both cases, the institutions function best when they are aware of the broad tides of public opinion, but are at the same time focused on the long view and insulated from political cycles. Larry, is there anything the Biden administration can do to keep us out of a recession? I think at this point, given the excesses that we have had and given the 
challenges associated with uh, supply shocks, the Ukraine war, all of that, that one would have to say that the preponderant probability was that we will have a recession. We can hope to be lucky, and I wouldn't rule out the possibility at all that we will be lucky and uh, that a recession will be avoided. But I think it's probably a little less than one in four that that will take place, but it certainly could. I think the more that the Biden administration is able to do some of the things we talked about in terms of removal of various supply side factors that contribute to higher prices, that will all make the task of containing inflation easier and therefore will be helpful. High inflation versus high unemployment. That's not the choice. That is fundamentally not the choice. And the tendency to frame it that way is the source of great policy error. We have the ability to choose the inflation rate over time, over long periods of time. We don't have the ability to choose the unemployment rate on average over time. That depends upon the broad structure of the economy. And so the problem is that if we choose high inflation, we will get high inflation and we won't get any permanent reduction in unemployment as a consequence. To go back to the example I've used a few times, if you want to keep getting a buzz, you have to drink more and more. And so you can control, you know, is it better to have a hangover and to have a buzz? Who knows what the answer to that is, but that's not really your choice. Really your choice is if you want to keep having the buzz, the hangovers are getting worse and worse and worse, and the addiction is going to get more and more uh, serious. And that's the nature of the problem with respect to inflation and precisely the error of the Vietnam War period and the 1970s was the supposition that higher unemployment was terrible. And so we just had to accept higher inflation, but it didn't work except on a very temporary basis. And then it had to be higher inflation still until the policy crashed around us and the economy had to go into a very painful and difficult rehab. And that's one way of thinking about the Volcker period. And that is, I think, the lesson we need to keep in mind today. You mentioned the White House. I'm sure there's someone in the White House right now who is stressing out about the 24 election cycle. I mean, 22 is already baked. I mean, we're doing polling right now, and it is what it is. But 24 is still a ways away. But if you're right and that we're headed in this period of recession, it's going to impact the election cycle. Someone's got to be worried about that. What would you advise them to do? Bill Clinton used to say to all of us who worked with him that 
doing the right thing usually ends up being the right politics. But people sense when you're being political for a political reason, and they sense when you're trying to do the right thing. And if you try to do the right thing and that produces the best outcomes, it usually works out. So I don't have some kind of advice for manipulating a political business cycle. I think the administration and the Fed will be best served by doing the right thing. And I think that we've moved a very substantial distance. And I've been gratified by the fact that the Fed is now moving very much in the kind of direction that I would prefer. Larry, at the conclusion of each episode, we ask our guests to share three insights that they would like to leave behind if they were no longer with us. I think it's very important, always for all of us, to try very hard to see the world as it is rather than how we'd like it to be. And that a huge fraction of the world's mistakes and the world's bad choices come out of motivated reasoning. And so I think it's hugely important that people try to step back and see the world as it is. The second is that in a world where there's huge interconnection, huge interconnection between countries and huge interconnection in our lives. The last thing I ever did in my life, professional life, where success was largely about me, was writing my thesis. After that, everything I've done has depended upon my ability to work for somebody, to have somebody work for me, most often to work with people. And so the capacity for collaboration, whether it's with adversaries or whether it's with friends, is an immensely important skill to develop. And it depends upon understanding and developing the capacity to have empathy with or without sympathy. It's terribly important if I'm going to work with you whether I like what you stand for or whether I don't like what you stand for, for me to be able to understand the perspective uh, that you have. If I'm trying to persuade you, if I'm trying to coerce you, if I'm trying to induce you, if I'm able to understand your worldview, I have a much, much greater chance of success. I think the third thing that I would say is it's important to recognize that you can't do everything, that life is about choices, and that you have to think about what the best choices are going to be, and to take a careful view of making choices, a view that thinks not just about the next day, the next month, or the next year, but that looks forward through time about the consequences of the choices that you make, 
and a view that recognizes not just the direct impact of the choices you make, but the indirect impact as well. There's a very powerful metaphor that applies in many, many contexts that was suggested by a teacher of mine, Art Oaken, an economist who died almost 40 years ago, who remarked that if somebody stands up at a football game, they see better. But if everybody stands up at a football game, everybody's less comfortable and no one sees better. And understanding those kinds of dynamics is, I think, profoundly important for making better choices. And ultimately, all of us and all of our impacts on the world are defined by the choices that we make. Thank you very much, Larry. It was great seeing you. Good to be with you. Thank you.